Hey, welcome to Current Yield. My name is Jim Grant, Grant's interest rate observer, and uh, with me today is the cast of characters. Eric Whitehead is uh, sitting to my left. He's at the control panel. Evan Lorenz, the great editor of Grant's interest rate observer, is sitting directly across. There's Phil Grant right there, uh, the editor of Almost Daily Grants. Phil gets an occasional day off, like Saturday and Sunday and Thursday, sometimes Tuesdays. And joining us today is Barclay Live, who is, uh, among other things, the author of the second most famous Princeton University senior thesis. Right behind Jack Bogle, right? I think so. And um, Barclay's going to tell us about hedge funds, about his uh, career. He claims to have a like a 65-year career on Wall Street. He's about 26 years old, so we'll see about that arithmetic. But to uh, start off with, Barclay, you got to say something to prove people you're here. Yeah, so, I am here, Jim, and it's a pleasure to be with you. Well, I'm a great, great fan of your podcast. Well, thank you, Barclay. You can stay for the entire three hours. So we have a lengthy podcast today because we have a lot to cover. Now, um, Evan, you sent around a story today that plays directly into Barclay Lib's line of work. Barclay is, among other things, and is, shall we call it, lengthy. We'll get around to the years in a moment, but it's lengthy and very complex and interesting career. Barclay is, I think, currently is, uh, among a, is a forensic student of hedge funds. I work on behalf of family offices, trying to keep them from making stupid mistakes and or stealing, right? Appropriate allocations and not hit, not hit, not hit any frauds. Stealing, stealing, not get stolen from. No, in other words, not blow up. And you know, if this wonderful bull market. Uh, ever happens to come to an yeah. end. So, so you look after the customers' yachts. You know, I'll give you my background. Listen, no, I, no, we have to. We have to we, we, just, as customary, Barclay, we have to start with Evan's news. So, Evan, uh, what is in the news today about hedge funds? Well, uh, in terms of hedge fund openings, we're at an 18-year low. We've actually gone back to 2001, which was not a great year for the market either. Okay, Barclay, I wish to uh, to get into your career, not chronologically, but but from the point of view of immediate financial market interest. Could you tell us uh, in your work on behalf of family office? and your scouring of hedge funds for practice and malpractice, what should one be most aware of uh, before investing in a hedge fund? Yeah, I, I basically have three or four rules at most for vetting hedge funds. One is make sure you're dealing with honorable people. Don't deal with someone who's all prickly on the way in because they probably get more prickly on the way out. Um, the second rule is make sure that if you're paying hedge fund fees, you're getting something special. And in my mind, that is an ability to survive in an all-weather way if we do end up having a different environment and some sort of entropic reversal from the bull market of the last 10 years or the last 35 years. The third thing which I look for is, uh, could you please uh, give me enough transparency and make it easy for me uh, to follow what you're doing uh, by writing a good quarterly letter or monthly letter. And, you know, the, the, the fourth thing is, is really that smaller managers tend to be a little bit more nimble than the asset gatherers. And so I'm looking for managers who have between 50 million and 500 million uh, who aren't going to ruin their business and grow to be too big. Um, I've, I've sat in the trading seat for a $500 million long short equity fund, and it's hard to move uh, that amount of money, let alone several billion dollars. So those are my four criteria that I look for for family offices. And uh, you would be a amazed how many people flunk one of those criteria. Well, uh, tell us about your view of funds in the light of uh, Jack Bogle, the late Jack Bogle, and his view of paying anything above like six basis points per year for performance. Sure. Um, Listen, I think the years of two and 20 um, are long gone. Uh, the, the golden era of hanging out a shingle as a hedge fund in 2006 and having money flock towards you is gone. I, I think the entire history of alternative investments has been a little bit 
difficult because what happened is that back in 1999, when the first dot-com bubble burst in 2000, um, and then hedge funds actually did pretty well in 2000, 2001, 2002, and the endowment and foundations and the pension said, ah, you know, we should have had more of that. And so in 03, 04, 05, the money came pouring into hedge funds, and but they didn't know how to do it at the time, so they hired fund of funds to hold their hand and indoctrinate them into uh, the hedge fund world. And so that was the golden era of fund of funds. And then in 07, 08, neither fund of funds nor hedge funds covered themselves in glory. And by that point in time, the pensions and endowments had been in this uh, business of allocating to hedge funds for five or six years. They said, we can do this ourselves, uh, but maybe we should hire a consultant to hold our hand. And so circa 08, 09, uh, the fund of funds got disintermediated. They weren't like there to seed the smaller managers anymore. So the smaller managers got disintermediated. And lo and behold, the consultants came along and said, um, you know, what you need is something which looks like a Goldman Sachs. It looks like a big big fund that won't have fraud risk, you need to go into the big multi-strats, the millenniums and the Baliasnys and other, you know, multi-strat firms. And um, and so those firms got really big. Um, there was a point in time when D.E. Shaw said that uh, if we had more than five billion dollars that, you know, we were capacity constrained. And then all of a sudden, uh, JP Morgan bought a, a hedge fund and said, we didn't do that for our health. And they turned it into a $20 billion hedge fund. So everyone went to 20 to 30 billion in the multi-strat space. And then guess what? The multi-strats underperformed um, and didn't do so well. What is going to outperform? Smaller managers uh, that are nimble and that have an edge in stock picking to the short side. How can anyone have an edge in this day and age of ubiquitous, large data? You know, I think it's more an art than a science, but I still, I mean, listen, we've been living through an era of QE and passive investing being popular and, and low fees. And I get that. Um, but at the same point in time, that era won't last forever. And what I worry about more is, you know, I've, I've been in this business since 1981. Um, and each of the crises that I've lived through seem to be getting bigger. Um, the crisis of 87, uh, the 1991 housing and loan crisis, the LTCM crisis of 98 felt bigger than 1991. Uh, the dot-com bubble uh, burst seemed really big at the time. And then 07, 08 was even bigger. And I still worry that maybe we have a an even bigger one lurking out there. And I'm looking for ways to survive that and also not give away some return and be so curmudgeonly that I crawl into a corner. Barclay, can I ask you a question by analogy? You said that institutions got really heavily involved in hedge funds following 2001 because hedge funds performed pretty well. And then after 2008, they've kind of been ho-hum and underperformed the market. It seems like what institutions have done since then is they poured incredible amounts of money into these gigantic private equity and venture capital funds because they're the things that supposedly are beating the market and adding a premium. Do you see something similar playing out there where they get too big and eventually just undermine their own returns? Well, I would say the, the very popular things today are not that dissimilar from, I can remember back in 07, when I went to the Morgan Stanley Credit Day event, and there were 25 different credit managers talking about structured products and uh, CDS, tranches of CDS. And they were they all sounded pretty smart and somewhat similar. And it was very easy to pick one. And I said, I didn't want any of them. I, I wanted to stay away from all of them because I didn't think that that was going to end well. My analogy to today is that if you go to any Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley uh, hedge fund event, um, you will find a heavy preponderance of credit managers and direct lending managers. And it would seem to me that we have a 
credit bubble of some sort, um, that that is what you probably want to stay away from. But it's popular for the moment because credit is illiquid and you can market generously and smoothly and it gives people what they want. Uh, and so one of my mottos on my business card is with ease, investors believe what pleases. And I try to protect what's, people what's from that. What's that again? With ease, investors believe what pleases. That doesn't rhyme, Barkley. <laughs> <laughs> Almost rhymes. Evan, do you um, have anything to recall for our listeners with respect to really, really even and steady returns in direct lending? Yeah. Um, there is a direct lending fund that was conveniently named Direct Lending. It's rather easy to you know name their strategy. Um, we wrote about it in early March. And um, for, I think it was 2017, they had returns, monthly returns of 85 basis points, plus or minus, I think, three basis points every month in and out. Um, the SEC last week basically said that they were fibbing about their numbers and the CEO of the fund is kicked out and they, they have a number of problems, but it, it seems like what was too good to be true was. I don't think they're alone. I mean, I think that there are lots of fun and games that you can play with illiquid securities. And, uh, you know, there are other managers out there who um, might be buying odd lots pieces of RMBS paper left over from the OED crisis. And when you buy an odd lot, they typically trade at a discount of uh, 10 or 15% to a round lot price. But your administrator only has one price. And so that allows them to, to write that uh, piece of security up. And people can call that trading profits. Um, but it's kind of fake because if you go sell the odd lot, you're going to be selling it at the same odd lot discount. Um, so that would be one strategy where you know, I've seen a manager with 2,000 positions in their portfolio, some of that showing there. And uh, I think that that's a problem. I also think that there's a situation in high yield debt um, that some managers may end up controlling an issue. And uh, I've seen situations where the second lien debt is being marched up in the screens above the first lien debt, um, which makes very little sense. You know what that reminds me of? Well, hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done. That is ZipRecruiter.com slash grant. So uh, ZipRecruiter uh, sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. But they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply for your job. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a qualified quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com grant. That's ZipRecruiter.com grant. ZipRecruiter.com slash grant. That's the uh, smartest way to hunt. Okay, so uh, how widespread is this kind of, if not fraud, but chicanery with pricing and, and kind of fibbing about performance? Well, you, look, you have to mark your book somewhere. And I think that there are honorable people out there who uh, make a... You have any of their names? <laughs> who make an effort to... Um, uh, but that goes back to my, my first point, that you need to deal with good people that you trust. Right, but how do you... But yeah, but, I mean, Barkley, who would disagree with that? And how do you, how do you vet someone's character? Well, you'd be amazed. I mean, I just um, was an expert witness uh, for a lawsuit involving the demise of Platinum Partners. Um, and my job was to go back and pretend that it was 2014 uh, and that I didn't know much about Platinum Partners, but a, a boss of mine told me to go look at it and, and see whether it was approvable. Um, I found 25 red flags that a RIA completely missed uh, starting with the use of Google, 
um, and looking for press stories. And uh, so that's your secret, huh? <laughs> <laughs> it's a start. It's a start. But you know, you use LexisNexis, you use Westlaw, you use any of the tools that you have available to do background checks. Um, having poked around this industry for 35 years, you make phone calls to people you know, other people who might be invested or have looked at the fund, and you use your network to the most of your, the greatest, greatest ability that you can. Well, I would like to ask you about the Hunt brothers. Now, this is a, na a name from yesteryear. It's uh, Bunker Hunt and uh, two of his brothers, right? We're on this. Uh... Herbert and uh, Lamar. Right. I think um, the year was 1980, and the month was March, when one of the greatest trades ever in the history of the COMEX, uh, having been magnificently stuck, came unstuck. And uh, Hunt Brothers at one time, I believe, had a $10 billion position in silver. They got in uh, some of the, I think the earliest prices were a dollar or less. And uh, by the time the metal peaked, it was $50. And by the time the Hunt Brothers peaked, they were billionaires many times over. They had a margin loan of about $2 billion from, among other things, Beach. And these figures now sound as if they're missing zeros, right? Because we have learned to reckon our crises in trillions, not billions. But at the time, it was, uh, uh, I think the word uh, was systemic or certainly appeared to have systemic consequences. Paul Volcker, the new installed Fed chair thought so. And Barkley, you, you wrote about this in one of your two, not one, but two Princeton senior theses. And um, I think your conclusion was that the Hunts, however reckless they might have been personally, were nonetheless undone, not through principally their own recklessness, but by the changing of the rules on the part of the establishment. Yeah. And let me kind of go back to August of 1979. And the Hunts, obviously, it was an era of inflation and oil prices going up. And the Hunts were on the bandwagon, uh, beating the drum for silver, which is a finite commodity that used to be used uh, quite a bit for photography, and hence it would be used up every year. And there weren't a lot of above ground stockpiles of silver. And um, then it was money. And there was probably you know annual production of 650 million. It was money. That's the Hunt Brothers side. It well, was, it was it was a hard asset. And, and they well, were... Well, it was. It, until the early 60s, when the Kennedy administration reversed this, you could carry around in your wallet pieces of paper that said a silver certificate. Yes. And you also could have silver coins until about 1966. Right. Had silver so content. the Hunt side, I think, if I remember correctly, but regarded the demonetization of silver as part and parcel and symptomatic of the inflationary era. And they, they, they couldn't imagine anyone accepting paper dollars in exchange for silver at almost any price. That yeah. was their view. They were absolutists. Sure. And they recruited people from the Middle East to their cause and circulated bullish research. And yeah. they, they accumulated, I mean, back in that era, the total annual production of silver was about 650 million ounces. And the hunts arguably via physical silver and, and contracted uh, futures contracts, you know, probably controlled 500 million of the 650 million. And uh, there was definitely a prospect that there was going to be a delivery squeeze in COMEX. Mm -hmm. What really happened, though, is you have to go back to an era of slightly different tax uh, regime for trading futures. And I'll, I'll just get a little granular here for a minute because it's an interesting story that as of August of 1979, the, the Hunts had to roll their silver futures position, which they had in the September contract. And normally you would roll it to the next contract, which was December, but they decided to roll it to March of 1980. Uh, so that in that era, if you held a, a futures contract for more than six months, you would create a long-term gain. 
They also went out and they bought a lot of March 1980 silver futures and sold March of 1981 silver futures, which normally would be a bearish trade. The, the price of silver goes down, that spread would decline. But it happened to create more congestion in the 1980 March contract because of the near leg. And uh, you know, and 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 if they held that contract, that spread position for six months, gee, you know, some tax advisor told them that well, short term, short futures in that era. Uh, there was no more blended rate, would always be a short-term loss if the silver price had gone up over the six-month period. So it was a tax game. Create long-term gains, create short-term losses via this, this spread position, and create a little extra congestion. The, the problem is the other side of their trade um, back in that era was a fellow, there were other people, but mostly a fellow by the name of Henry Jarecki, who ran a, a firm called Makata Metals. And Henry had figured out a different arbitrage game. He had gone out and bought silver coins in bags and gone to a bank and said, this is a US legal tender. You're going to give me a really cheap loan. Um, and then I'm going to hedge myself by selling silver futures against that. And I can lock in a spread, a cash and carry spread. The problem is you can't legally melt down silver back. So he's long silver and short silver at a spread with a profit. And maybe it was a 3% spread or a 4% spread to the March 1980 silver price. But um, the problem is he can't melt the coins. There was no refining capacity, even if it was legal. And all of a sudden, when the silver price started going up, courtesy of the hunts, um, Mr. Drecke was getting a lot of margin call. And uh, he was backed by Standard Chartered Bank. And, um, you know, getting kind of sick of him calling up that he needed another $10 million $15 million to meet the COMEX margin calls. Um, Henry also happened to sit on the board of the COMEX. And so lo and behold, in, starting in January of 1980, he started to implement or cause to be implemented or petitioning to be implemented uh, various position limit rules, um, which didn't work initially because the hunts opened up more accounts with their nephews and their dogs and their cousins. Um, and then eventually uh, for liquidation only, um, saying that you had to liquidate your position, you could not stand for delivery. Um, but if you were a hedger, uh, as he was, uh, or in the industry, you, you, those rules did not apply to you. So it was, it was a demise. They changed the rules. They changed the Okay, rules. so there was something else going on, which was a thing called interest rates. And uh, Volcker had come in in uh, August of 1979, and he had lowered the boom in the famous press conference of October 6, 1979. And by the time 1980 rolled around, the long bond was on its way to 10%. So the hence were betting not only against Henry Jarecki, but also against the institution of compound interest. Well, I, I think the whole exercise was really the first time that are maybe not the first time, but maybe the first time in my career when the government saw prices and price action that they didn't like. And I think there was definitely a, a, a interest in the CFTC to say, like, we've got to stop this because it's not in our interest to have the silver market going up and up and up and, and um, uh, our credibility going down and down. Well, and certainly down. it was not the first time. I guess there are no first times for anything in finance. Everything had a beginning, which was in the mists of antiquity. Um, hey, are you paying too much to send out packages and letters? I bet you are. And wouldn't it be nice to have a solution that gives you the latest and lowest rates? With SendPro Online, it's easy to save time and money no matter what you send, from packages to overnights and letters. And uh, here are some of the benefits. You can easily compare USPS, UPS, and FedEx rates all in one online tool. Also gain access to special U.S. Postal Service savings for letters and priority mail shipping. Print shipping labels and stamps from your own printer. Track all of your shipments and get email notification when they've arrived. 
So SendPro Online is only $14.99 a month. And for being a current Yield listener, parens, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, close parens, you can get a free 30-day trial and get started, plus a free 10-pound scale to help you accurately weigh your packages. Visit pb.com slash grantspods to access this special offer. That's pb.com slash grantspod. Experience the better way to ship with a free trial of SendPro Online. Barkley, is there anything you particularly want to get off your chest? Um, I was going through your LinkedIn, and you were comparing uh, 2017 to 1873 as a historical precedent. Yeah. And you wrote that um, history has a tendency to rhyme. What antecedents today are you looking at to make sense of the market and the economy? Well, I probably could have said this a few years ago, but I, uh, and, and maybe I'm speaking to the king of financial history, so I have to be careful. But it does remind me that uh, as we came out of the Civil War, the U.S. government had run out of uh, gold. And uh, that was the first time, 1861-62, that they started printing greenbacks to finance the Civil War, um, which to me is coming out of the financial crisis of 08 was the first time we resorted to QE. Um, and then the next thing which happened is in 1867, 68, 69, the gold price started going up a lot and some hedge funds of the era, Jim Fisk and Jay Gould, uh, chased the gold to the astronomical price in 1869 of $169 an ounce uh, until Grant was not bribable to not release the gold reserves and the gold price plummeted, which to me is a little bit reminiscent of Paulson and some of the hedge funds chasing gold into 2011. Uh, my next analogy to that era is that in 1870, we had an interim election where some more fiscally responsible, hard money people came back into Congress, a little bit like the Tea Party of 2012. And then what happened in 1871, 1872 is that that was the era of Tammany Hall and huge corruption. It was also the era of huge infrastructure build where the railroads were going westward. And um, uh, to me, I would analogize that to maybe the corruption that you see in China today um, and the huge infrastructure bill that you see there uh, in today's world. And so uh, for a while, you, you know, Jim, you're about to cut me off to say what happened in 1873 uh, was that eventually we had the Northern Pacific Railroad, uh, which had a lot of bonds outstanding to mostly European investors, one day go bankrupt. And so I kind of keep waiting a little bit for a financial accident to transpire out of Asia uh, with some company that people say, wow, um, can you imagine that SoftBank or Alibaba or some, someone who's deemed to be mainstream just went belly up? Or Northern Pacific. <laughs> Whatever, we'll see. But, uh, you know, when the, when the headline hits, you'll think of me, Jim. <laughs> well, we will. And certainly we're grateful for you for coming in today, Barkley. Thank you for all this. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. On behalf of uh, Eric and, and uh, Evan and Phil and Barkley, I'm Jim Grant, and thank you again for thank listening you, to Current Yield. Thank you, Jim. 